thank you, Kirk. That's beautiful. It's wonderful for us to think about what's just around the corner. And um, man, it's kind of funny. It's, we're talking about time today. And um, against my better judgment, my sister told me not to do this, but I can't help it. For a, a series of summers, I worked downtown at uh, a Lifeway Christian bookstore that's no longer in that spot. And uh, if you took your lunch break at a certain time, you would walk in and there were these ladies that I worked with who took their lunch break every day at the same time. And as you walked in, you would hear, like sands through the hourglass. <laughs> these are the days of our lives. Now, those of you who are laughing at that means that either you or someone very close to you has watched their programs for a long time. And the problem with those programs is if you've ever watched one day of it, it's not that bad. But two days and it's like a tractor beam. It just sucks you right in and you can't get out. And, you know, you start thinking about time at the end of a year, don't you? You think about it and I don't know why because... What ultimately happens is the difference between your life on December 31st and January 1st is essentially no different. You're the same person. You have the same issues you had December 31st facing you as you do January 1st. Uh, you're living the same life. I mean, but, but it feels different, doesn't it? And as we think about this time of year, I think it's kind of natural for us to think back on the year and you probably find yourself remembering some of the good things that have happened this year maybe trying to assign some meaning and purpose to some of the challenging things that happened this year as you went through your life. And sometimes we mark the years uh, with significant birthdays or holidays, or sometimes it's just a year like this where you know that 2020 is going to be a year that marks something for you. It's, it's similar, I think, uh, to Y2K. It's, it's a year that people have been talking about and looking forward to as the year 2020. And as we try to understand time, we have to remember that's a daunting task that people have been trying to do since the beginning of time. They've tried to make sense of the days that they were living in. And I want you to think about what life must have been like 2,000 years ago for people who were trying to make sense of the times that they were living in, waiting on a Messiah to be born. And as we read our passage today, I want you to pay very close attention to the last two verses of the passage because I think you'll be encouraged today to think about time in a different way and to understand perhaps the way that God views time and the way that history unfolds. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 46. We're going to read the entirety of this passage called the Magnificat, this word that just means to magnify. It's a Latin word placed at the heading of this passage in our Bibles because it describes Mary's response to what the angel told her was going to unfold in her life. As she's been told that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, her response is to magnify the Lord. And she does that in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. And we'll read the following verses. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. 
For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He's done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to, his, to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, you've heard me say now for the last three weeks that what Mary's doing is taking something that's just greater than what on the surface appears to be just a response. She's taking things from the Old Testament that we can find, and she's bringing them forward and saying, I'm seeing all this kind of culminate and come together. And, and what she's giving us really is divinely inspired because if you think about it, there's not many teenagers, as most people believe Mary was, who are going to be able to speak like this. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about uh, that she may be, you know, a 15, 16-year-old girl speaking like this, and it's an amazing thing that she says. From the beginning, Mary has realized the mighty power of God, not only in her life, but in the lives of everybody who's going to be affected by this. And she constantly quotes the scripture reminding us that God has resisted the proud all along, but he's given grace to the humble. And she finds herself in a humble state, really the recipient of God's grace. And as we saw last week, she had a keen understanding of what it meant then to be humble enough to search and hunger for righteousness. Today we catch a glimpse of the way that God uses time. I think we think in times in terms of days and weeks and months and hours and even years... And we sometimes uh, think that when things take a long time, we complain about it because we're so accustomed to things being done quickly. We're so ready for things to be done in an instant, and we want someone to fix our problems quickly. We want our deliveries to come on time. Some of you are hoping that they'll get here in time for Christmas because you were late getting to them. Shame on you. You know, it's that kind of thing, right? We want it now. Everything needs to be now. But that definitely bleeds over into how we have these expectations formed in the way we think about God. We think that God should answer us quickly. We don't think we should have to persevere in prayer. We don't understand the scope of history the way that God sees it. And when God doesn't move quickly, we often assume his silence to either be his indifference or his unkindness towards us, that he's not moving, and, and we're mistaken in that. And Mary's gonna kind of expose that for us today. It's important for us to understand this arc of time, if we're going to have a proper understanding of the time that we're living in. In the years before Jesus was born, hope would have been in short supply for the Jews. They'd been exiled, you may remember, in the Old Testament to a place called Babylon. They were allowed to return to Israel later under Persian rule. But even then, things didn't go great. Because from the time Malachi is written until the birth of Christ, somewhere around this 400-year period, we see over and over again Things don't work out the way they'd hoped they would. It's one conquering nation after another. It was first the Babylonians, then the Persians. This time it's the Romans. And when Christ is, is born, Herod is ruling in a puppet government approved by the Romans. He's put in power by Rome to deal with these problematic Jews who, as you can imagine, don't appreciate outsiders meddling in their affairs. And so there's constant tension between the Jews and their oppressors or aggressors, if you want to call it that way. And this is going on and on. It's honestly hard to imagine a darker time for God's people. They've been conquered, exiled, brought back to their own land, only to have power change these several times. And then there's no word from the Lord. For hundreds of years, nothing is happening. 
There's just no word from the Lord. It's quiet. Nothing is going on that they can see. Nothing's happening that they can hear. Imagine generation after generation of people dying, waiting on the Messiah. Imagine that. Where's this promised one? Where's the word of the Lord? And all of a sudden, things go quiet. Well, you can imagine how people would be despondent. You can see how they would feel forgotten and abandoned. This once great nation of God's own people is reduced to a group of people with limited rights and freedoms. They can't go and do what they want to do. But then all of a sudden, everything changes because two women were told the time is now. Two women were told the time is now. Elizabeth and Mary, cousins. Elizabeth is going to have a baby in her old age, a miracle in its own right, John the Baptist. And Mary is going to have a baby that will be God's own son. The Messiah is going to be born. And it's easy to see how that would make you excited. Elizabeth's certainly excited by the Holy Spirit when she sees Mary come and she says, the baby inside of me leapt in my womb because I understand that you are the mother of the Lord. The Lord is in our presence. And Mary's overwhelmed with this confirmation and she immediately begins this praise of the Lord for all that he's doing in her life. But she sees God working in such a bigger way and the scope of what he's doing isn't just for Mary, it's for all mankind. Look again at verse 54 and 55. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. And he, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The very first thing that she said is that God had given help to Israel. And the word that she uses has this idea of grabbing hold of someone and lifting them up or rendering aid to them when they need it the most. It's literally taking them and raising them up. And that's what she's saying is going on here. This, this picture is illustrated what was going to happen later because all of the Old Testament saints had lived with this promise that was to come. They had lived with faith, but they had never seen the promise. They had not experienced the promise. It was something that was going to come. If you remember the book of Hebrews chapter 11, speaks to us about this roll call, the hall of fame of faith. All of these people who have lived and died in faith, they were all looking towards something that was going to be better. And it says these Old Testament saints believed God would save them through the Messiah. But I want you to hear what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 39. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. The Old Testament saints were living under this promise they didn't receive in full in their own lifetimes. They had faith it was going to come, that God was going to save them through the Messiah, but they were waiting for the one that would cleanse them from their sins. When Mary says God's given help to his servant, she understands this is the one who has been promised. This is the one who's going to render aid to us. The Messiah is going to come and change everything for us. This comes through God's mercy towards us. From the beginning of time, we read the scriptures, one of the things that we see over and over again is that we have been dealing with the shame caused by our own sin. We've been dealing with that shame. When our ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned, their immediate response was to do what? They hid from the Lord. The scripture says that God used to come and, and walk in the garden and he had fellowship with them. But after they sinned, something had changed. A relationship had been broken. Their relationship with the Lord had been altered. And now, instead of looking forward to him being there, they're hiding from him. And we see this over and over again. When we sin, we can be overwhelmed with guilt and shame in the same way. There's a reason why sin's equated with darkness. It leaves you feeling terrible about yourself, ashamed of yourself. 
separation from God that we experience from our sin is often like what you might experience when a relationship on earth is broken, when it's fractured. There's this sense of, of distance that takes place. You don't feel as close to someone as you once did. And what Mary is saying is that God's mercy comes to us even when we are in this state of shame and guilt. Even in the darkness, we see this light. In Adam and Eve's case, God did something amazing. I want you to see how his mercy worked. When they were hiding from God, the scripture says that God took skins from animals and clothed them. He hid their shame. God did that. It was his mercy that did that. He wanted a relationship with them, even though they had broken his word, even though they had sinned. I want you to think about Mary's situation. She's been looking for Messiah just like everyone else. She's been waiting for Messiah just like everyone else. And not only is she told she'll be his mother, but she's also going to be the recipient of grace and mercy through the Messiah. She'll be saved through her son. Joseph is told the same thing in our reading of Matthew. It says, this is going to be this baby. Name him Jesus. He's going to save my people from their sins. That's God's mercy towards us. It's God's ultimate act of mercy. He finds us hiding from him because of our sin and our shame. And we know our relationship with God is fractured, just like people have known it throughout the entirety of time. And yet, in every time, in every place, in every culture, people have tried to, to make gods they could appease to get rid of this sin and shame, and it just doesn't work. The only remedy is for God to offer us help, and he does it through Jesus Christ. We can't do it on our own because the scripture reminds us our very heart's intention is to wander away. Our heart is set on evil and despite our best efforts, we cannot obey God's law. So God reached down and helped his people by sending his own son to die. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah said it. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God remembered his mercy toward us and allowed Jesus to carry our sorrows, our griefs, our sin, our shame to the cross all of our iniquity fell upon him. And God's word clearly states to us that the only way for us to have a relationship with God, to have peace with God, is to receive this mercy and grace that's offered to us through the Lord Jesus Christ to, to allow God's mercy to be poured out on us. And Mary understood this clearly. She saw the help that was made available through the Messiah. It's like the Lord reaching down and picking us up, dusting us off, fitting us with new clothes just after we've made the biggest fools of ourselves. God does that for us. That's God's mercy. And for those of us who are in Christ, this season is a celebration of that mercy. The day of our Savior's birth is an opportunity for us to stop and raise our eyes towards heaven and praise the living Lord Jesus Christ because he is the expression of God's mercy towards us, that God loved us while we were yet sinners, and we praise him for that. We have an opportunity to believe again that God's mercies are new every morning and just let that mercy wash over us and be grateful for it. But for those of us who are in the room have not yet come to faith in Christ, his mercy is a reminder of his great love for you, but also the terrible wrath of God. It's a reminder of both. Because if God did not spare his own son, what does that mean for those who are not in Christ? It means that if you die without Christ, God's mercy will not divert his judgment. 
And this isn't because God doesn't love you or he's unkind or he's uncaring towards you. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the fact that God has given you an opportunity to know mercy and to receive mercy and you've rejected it. And if you reject it, even unto death, what the scripture says is in that moment of judgment, there is no opportunity left. And so it's a reminder for us today to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And as the scripture says, this invitation is not only for you, but for your children and for those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself, the scripture says. That opportunity is for you today, and I pray that you would receive his mercy because there's nothing standing between you and eternal life if you would receive the Lord Jesus Christ today. And I told you at the beginning of the message there was an important lesson for us to understand about time, and I want you to see verse 55 again. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary traced this promise of help and mercy all the way back to the very beginning. The first prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ really may be seen in Genesis chapter 3, but it becomes really clear for us in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abraham. This was Mary's relative from 42 generations prior. Think about that. 42 generations prior. She's looking back at something God said 42 generations ago, 2,000 years before her time. And as she begins to think about that, what she says is amazing. She remembered that God called Abraham and told him he would become a great nation and that all of the nations of the world would be blessed through him. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? If God spoke to you and said he was going to make you a nation and he was going to bless you and bless everyone that came after you and that all of the people of the world would be blessed through you, that would get you excited as well. And I'm sure it did for Abraham. It meant something else was going to change in his life, though, when Abraham got this promise. It meant that Abraham was going to be the recipient of a miracle because he didn't have any children. He and his wife Sarah had no children. They were past the age of childbearing. And yet God had promised a nation through him. To have a nation, you have to have people. So how did it work? Well, God gave Abraham the son of promise, Isaac. And then Isaac had twins, and there was a son of promise named Jacob. And Jacob had, had these 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and things were going well, it seemed like, until there was a little speed bump there. It was called slavery in Egypt. Do you remember that? 400 years of slavery. Things start looking up with Moses, but then they go terribly wrong when the people rebel. And there's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it goes on and on like this for 2,000 years. When we listen to a piece of music, we are accustomed to an art form in music, a technique called the crescendo. The crescendo is when the composer takes the music and, and he begins to build it into one big moment. And, and maybe it becomes louder and all of the emotion of that piece of music comes right into a focal point And it gets your attention and grabs your attention. And everything just kind of hits its focus right there. And that's how we like to think that life works as well and that history works. You start off small in a little apartment when you get married with a solid first job. You build a life. You build a family. You build a career. You move up in life until you reach your peak at retirement, and then you've just lived this perfect life that has crescendoed. That's how we like to look at it, but God doesn't do it that way. Messiah didn't come at the height of the kingdom of David. 
when David was ruling in all the splendor and glory and Israel was at its finest. That's not when Messiah came. It didn't come when a little boy named Josiah became king and called the nation back through the law to repentance. It came to a small town far away from everything that was important to this world into a stable in a manger with no one around after 400 years of silence to a young girl who was not particularly special in anything in and of herself. But here's the important thing to remember. The promise came. The promise came. God was as good as his word. Paul described it like this to the church at Galatia in Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time came, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time came, God acted. When the time was perfect, it doesn't seem like a perfect time. It seems like a time when things were at their lowest. It doesn't seem like when, when the scope of history is, is running off to the highest point of human history. It seems like it was the worst of times, and yet it was the fullness of time, the perfect time. So I thought about this passage this week and prayed about it. Well, I couldn't help but think about our own world. I believe our world is headed for a collision with darkness. The world loves the darkness. It's distracted by the darkness, and it doesn't understand that the collision's coming. Like a distracted driver not paying attention to the warning signs that modern technology gives us in our cars that a, co a collision is coming. That's the, the way of the world right now. And Jesus said, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed." we're waiting on a crescendo, we may be waiting a while. But we would be wrong to think that God will not keep his word. We would be mistaken this morning to think that God will not keep his word. We would be wrong to think that because he has always kept his word. When it seemed like it was the darkest, he came. When it seems like things are dark in our world, he exists. When it seems like things are dark and you've been praying and asking and hoping and waiting, and you think that he's done and he's not moving, you're wrong. The scripture says that his word is true and we can believe his word. We can trust his word, believe his promises. We can look at our world today and believe that the fields are white unto harvest because the word of God says that they are. We can believe that even though some say they are not, the harvest will come. We can believe that faith comes by hearing, even though some say that it's a waste of time. We can believe that the word of God remains true to that. We can believe that we have a hope and a future because God has promised it to us. We can believe, as the psalmist told us, that God would prosper us in all things, that we would be like a tree planted by the waters, that we would bear our fruit in season because the word of God tells us that it will be that way. We can also believe that he's coming back again. We can believe that he said he would come back and that he will, even though this promise now has been 2,000 years. Christmas reminds us it's just around the corner, literally. It's just around the corner. In the fullness of time, our king will come. He'll split the eastern sky and return to judge the world and call the faithful home to rest 
and eternal glory. And so as you think about Christmas this year, I hope it does one of two things for you. I hope that time really comes into focus for you and that like Mary, you begin to see that God's mercy has been waiting for the fullness of time, maybe in your life. And maybe today would be the day that you would receive the mercy of God, that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, repent and be baptized, that you would receive salvation today because this is the time and time is running out because the other aspect of time is that just around the corner, he's coming back. And we know that when he comes, he will judge the world. And so for those of us who are believers this morning, maybe you've been waiting for God to do something. You've been praying for something for a long time. You've been struggling to believe that God still has a plan or Or maybe you just have wondered, is there any hope left in this world? The message of Christmas is that God does what he says he will. The message of Christmas is that God is faithful to deliver on every one of his promises and that we should not mistake God's uh, patience for unkindness or inaction, but that God is working all things together for his good and for ours And that in the fullness of time, God will restore all that has been broken by our sin. And so as we celebrate Christmas this year, we echo the prayer of the saints and say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we believe it. And while we wait, we pray that in the fullness of time, we would see the harvest because you have promised that you would give it to us. That we will not grow weary in doing what is good. Because that harvest awaits us, Lord. So, Lord Jesus, we trust your word and we ask you to come and restore all things. Would you pray with me? Father, as we consider the days in which we're living, I pray that we would have understanding of the times in which we live and that we wouldn't take the temperature of the culture to be the reality of what you're doing. Father, in darkness, the light shines. And as Mary reminds us, you were faithful to Abraham. And you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we declare with joy today that your word is true, your promises are true, and by faith we receive them and believe them. And Lord Jesus, we believe that you're coming back and we pray that while you wait for the Lord to give you the word to come back, for God to give you the word to come back, that you would find us faithfully in the field sowing the seed of the gospel. Lord, we pray for there to be workers sent into the harvest and for the harvest to begin in Nashville, Tennessee. And at the same time, we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.